0: So we are in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, so if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. We will be studying quite a a few verses, so we're going to have to move at somewhat of a brisk pace today. As we make our way into chapter 11, we enter with Paul's challenge echoing in our hearts and minds that we are to do all that we do to the glory of God. We've been meditating on the universal nature of that driving aim. All indicates, of course, that there must be no rebel portion of our hearts that we keep back from the Lord God. That If we're going to trust Him, that we trust Him with our everything. Faith in Christ is holistic. It cannot be only applied to a part or portion of our being. Faith is not fractional. It is one or nothing. And so, one of the ways that we grow as believers is by systematically making sure that every inch of our lives glorify the Lord. And that means self examination. We've got to look at our hearts, we've got to watch our behaviors, and think about the words that we say and, and the mannerisms that we portray to the world. It means that we have to have an ever increasing knowledge of God's word so that we know better how to refine our actions, in our thoughts, in our attitudes that we might confidently know that as we walk, we are walking in a way that glorifies the Lord. And it may at times mean that a personal reformation of sorts is in order in our hearts, that incrementally there might be ways that we live that need to change as we discover more from God's Word, as we see what He desires for us. Are we willing, church, to do that? Is our heart prepared for that kind of confrontation when we come before the Word of the Lord? that he might show us something that we had not seen before, that we had not yet been willing to obey. Much of 1 Corinthians is Paul exhorting the Corinthians to conform their lives, their actions, more perfectly to the teachings and the attitudes of Christ, that their behavior might better mimic and match the way that Christ lived when he dwelled on earth. The reason for that is if Jesus is your Lord but only on your terms, then you are actually the one who's trying to be the Lord of your relationship with Jesus. If he's not the one who is guiding and directing, if he's not the one who is instructing and commanding, if you're the one that says, Lord, I will follow you in this gar- in regard, in this regard, in this regard, but there's much that I'm going to keep to myself, then who is really playing God in that scenario? Who has the authority? And so what the Lord brings to us today through the ministry of his word, will almost certainly challenge us to take stock of our current expectations of what worshiping him should look like. It is my prayer that we are not only ready for that, but if it be from the Lord, we welcome it. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read beginning with verse 2 all the way through to verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them up to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace, it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, I was going to forego my normal prayer right here, but I I need the prayer. So (laughs) in the interest of time... Time doesn't matter as much as truth, so let's ask the Lord for guidance and blessing in this message. Almighty God, you are holy and good. Let us not be afraid of your word, Lord. Let us embrace it wholeheartedly and be thankful for the instruction that it gives. And if there are passages of scripture that are difficult for us to comprehend and to digest, I pray that you give us grace as we try to come to an even ground together. You want us to be of one mind as a church, Lord God. Uh, And sometimes that process takes time. So I pray, God, that you would be gentle with us, that you would not uh, allow your man in the pulpit to cower today, but that you would instead preach with boldness and truth. I pray, Father, that we would take these principles to heart and that we would learn from them and that you would be glorified as we are sanctified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 2, Paul seems to commend the Corinthians oddly here. As if there's little conflict between them when we are already seen that there is quite a bit of conflict between the Corinthians and Paul who planted the church and helped to raise that church up. But on the issue that he's about to bring up, apparently they've mostly been in accord with him. So what he's probably dealing with is a situation that is arising in the Corinthian church, but it hasn't become a dominant thing yet. They've mostly been in accord with him. But take uh, for a minute a chance to look at verse 17. Just look forward a little bit. We're not going to read a big chunk here, but in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, 17, right after we're done looking at this passage of Scripture next week, it says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. And in that package of Scriptures that comes after that admonition, Paul is showing how displeased he is with the way they handle the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion. So what we see here is two opening phrases that are linked linguistically and thematically, which gives us good confidence to understand that this big section of chapter 11 is focused on a very specific thing. It is focused on how we worship the Lord when we gather together as the saints on the Lord's Day specifically. In verse 3, Paul says, Beloved, I want you to understand. Now remember, when we talk about these Corinthians, as we see Paul writing to them, what was their background? They did not have, most of them, a very strong Hebraic background. They were not very familiar with the customs of the Old Testaments uh, or the law therein. And so Paul is trying to bring them along, not only in uh, salvation, but also in their sanctification. He wants them to understand some fundamental principles which will undergird the instruction that he's about to give them. He needs to give them a foundation. So he's going to build that foundation first, and then he'll uh, create the structure off of it. So in this verse, fundamental theological principles are laid out, which will constitute that base upon which the rest of the argument is made. First, the head of every man is who? Christ. That's right. The head of a wife, and I want to pause here, the more accurate translation in this regard is the head of a woman, not the wife. And I'll explain why in just a minute. The head of a woman is man. Uh, thirdly, the head of Christ is God. These are three fundamental principles that Paul is going to build off of. When we look at this term head, we're talking about a concept called headship. And so before we progress, we need to ask ourselves, what is headship? What is headship? Why is it important? And why does, uh, what does the order of headship imply? Headship itself is about order. It is not about value. That's very important to understand right up front. It is about God's order. It is not about the value of the genders. It's not about the value of Christ versus the Father. It's not about the value even of Christ versus humanity. When we're talking about headship, we're talking about order. If it were talking about value, if somehow the scripture here was saying that women are not as valuable to God as men were because man is their head, if he was saying that, then you would also have to say that the Father is of greater value than the Son, wouldn't we? Is that true? It's most certainly not true. We believe the Trinity. We profess it here that God is one God in three eternal co-equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we can't be looking at a headship that implies here, at least in this context, that is really focused on uh, value. That's not the case. It's It's focused on order. Headship is also not entirely about authority, although often that is the only way that people want to think about headship. I have to think that the translators of the ESV we're trying to emphasize the authority element of headship in translating the greek term gune which can be translated wife or woman in translating it wife i think they had authority in mind but i think they made an error there and i think they weren't being very consistent either by the way the greek term for husband in this passage if you're reading out of the esv is anēr which can be translated husband or man and you look back at scripture and all the times that that word is used, it's almost a 50-50 split as to how much the terms are used and translated that way. If you look at the rest of the passage of scripture, the word aner and gune appear again and again, and many times the ESV inconsistently will translate it man and woman instead of husband or wife. I prefer to be consistent the whole way through and look at this as a, a headship of man over woman, not necessarily the headship of a husband over wife which is far more narrow and specific verse 3 tells us that headship also comes to bear within the Godhead of the Trinity so it's not just something person to person it also has to do God to God not that there are two gods but remember we're talking about one God who has eternally existed in three persons the Father the Son and the Spirit God the Father is referred to here as the head of Christ Now, this is not as if Christ is forever somehow below the Father in rank. That can't be true. They are co-equal. And remember, Jesus has declared to us in Matthew 28, 18, which should be a verse of Scripture that is very familiar to us, the opening of the Great Commission, which defines so much of the work of the church. He said that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to the Son. Now, if all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, does that leave out any authority? No, it doesn't leave out any authority at all. That's all the authority there is to be given. So it's not as if Father, <clears throat> the Father in heaven is reigning over the Son in some way. But when Christ came to took, take on flesh to be with us, there was a, a, a subjugation of his human nature because man will always be below God. Don't forget, though, that Christ was also simultaneously fully God, as he dwelt on earth. So he never stopped having that glory and that righteousness and that equality with the Father and the Spirit. So this isn't primarily about authority. It is about order. There is order to what God desires to do. And when he sent his son to earth to live the perfect life and to give that life as a sacrifice for all who would trust in him, then we see order in that plan. We see that plan prophesied For hundreds of years before Jesus even comes, there is great order in God's plan for salvation. The head of every man is Christ. We see here that headship is not so much about authority. It is not about value. It is primarily about origin, which speaks to order. Where do things come from? How do they come into being? The head of every man is Christ. This is true both generally in thinking that Christ spoke all things into creation. So in a sense, we can all say that God is all of our creator, but it is more specifically true of those who belong to the church. Because through salvation, Jesus has become the, the true head of our lives. We are who we are because of what Christ has done for us. He saves us And then he puts us to use glorifying himself and drawing others to him for his glory through the work of the church. So Christ creates, Christ saves, Christ makes alive, Christ sends. He is the origin of the believer. We are sent out from him. The head of woman is man. She was made from the body of man. This is pointing back to the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When Adam was formed of the dust of the earth, God breathed life into him. Everything to that point had been good. It had been declared good in the sight of God. And that's important to understand. But we also see in the creation of Adam that every other created thing had a pairing. They were male and female animals and birds. We see that god himself is triune he has community and fellowship with him in himself but when there was only adam there was something not good about that there was something that he needed that would be would be better for him and that was to have a partner and so god caused a deep sleep to come over adam and from his side and a rib was extracted and from that rib woman was created so in a very Literal sense, woman comes from man. The first woman, Eve, was brought forth into existence through the existence of Adam. The head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father. Jesus comes forth from the Father, doesn't he? He is the only begotten. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is created. It doesn't mean he didn't exist before he came to this earth through the womb of the Virgin Mary, but what it does mean is that God the Father commissioned and sent Jesus out to do the great work that he had agreed needed to be done. He goes forth from the Father and consistently throughout his ministry you see him looking back to the Father and trusting in the directives of the Father as he does what he does as Christ. It's interesting that Paul includes this. He talks about Jesus coming from the origin of the Father but it is consistent to Paul's theology. Because Paul always wants to bring these Corinthians back to the ultimate supremacy and primacy of God in all things. Christ is first. He is best. He's the only thing we should be preaching about is Christ. And so this is what headship is about. It's about order and origin. Having laid the foundational principles that Paul wants them to have in mind, he transitions to talking about the implications of these principles. Now we're starting to get more hands-on here. In verse four, he gives us instructions regarding how men should conduct themselves in the house of God. Now, remember, this whole chapter is dealing with worship together as gathered saints. So we're talking about the Lord's Day. This should not be a framework for every moment of our lives. It is specifically about the times when we gather together. He says here how men should conduct themselves in the house of God in verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head Covered does what? He dishonors his head. Who is his head? God is his head. So he is dishonoring God when he comes into the house of worship with his head covered. And we talk about uh, prayer and prophecy. This is further evidence that the rest, uh, this is in uh, lockstep with the rest of the chapter which talks about these gathered saints worshiping together. When we come together as a church, we pray together, don't we? We pray a lot. That is god conversation. We are talking to him. We are sharing our hearts with him. We are putting our attention and focus on him. We are confessing our sins to him. We are asking for his help. This is god conversation. And that term prophecy, we're going to get into in a lot more detail uh, in some of the coming verses that, that, that are not in this chapter, but in chapters to come. So we'll talk about them more detail later. But prophecy is not just telling the future. Prophecy is bringing forth what God has revealed to us. So I am prophesying to you right now from the pulpit. I am sharing with you the truths that God has given to us through his word. This is God conversing with us. Man word conversation from God. He is speaking to us through his perfect word. So why would we need to be covered or uncovered during this time of gathered worship, this time of great fellowship with the Lord? Why is it even a consideration? I might draw your attention back to a couple passages of Scripture. If you think about Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see uh, the man Isaiah, a prophet, coming into the throne room of God. God has supernaturally allowed him access to see the glory of God to some degree. Revelation is much the same. The apostle John is taken up in a vision to heaven in the throne room of God and he witnesses angels there worshiping God and what do we see consistently between the two we see these angels these fantastic creatures that do not fit in the creation that we know of they they are so different and other and holy and yet these mighty and majestic and beautiful creatures as they worship God what are they doing they are covering themselves they're covering their eyes they're covering their feet they're covering their heads Why are they doing that? They are doing that in reverence to the Lord God. They are careful about the way that they worship their creator. There was nothing wrong with those angels giving such a humble display. But we have to take into account that man has responsibilities that are different than that of the angels. Man is described here as the glory of God. He is like a glory an emanation of God's glory, a reflection of it, made in His image, made to show people the glory of God. So man is to fulfill his role according to the order that God establishes. As man has was made first by God, certain representative responsibilities became his own. He is to stand for truth like the God who made him. In his image. He is to obey what is true. He is to teach what is true. He is to love sacrificially, and He is to lead others to do the same. You can't talk about real manhood and not talk about those things, because those things are what men, made in the image of God, are called to do rightly. Though the modern-day culture that we live in might not understand that, in a symbolic way, a head-covering obscures the glory of God in man. Think about that for a second. If, God is, or if man is to represent the glory of God, he's to do so without shame. That doesn't mean he's not humble. That doesn't mean that he doesn't do that with a careful heart. But he is not to veil himself. He is not to cover his head because he has an expression of glory and truth that should not be hidden. I expect we will all likely leave church today talking about head coverings for women. That's probably what we're going to be chatting about when we're done. But just as important, are men boldly leading in our culture today, in our church today? Are they uncovered in the administration of their role as carrying the glory of God? Remember, just a couple of sentences ago, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, He's talking about a godly and holy leadership where his whole life is being submitted to Christ so that when people look at his life, they won't see Paul the Apostle. They'll see beyond Paul the Apostle and they will see the glory of God pouring out of the obedience that Paul is showing to Jesus Christ. Godly men, some of us need to unveil ourselves. Some of us need to stop creeping around this world hiding the glory of God unwilling to talk about it unwilling to declare it unwilling to stand for it because we're afraid of what people will think about us or because people will disagree with us. Men, this is not a sermon today just for the ladies. Ask yourself, am I veiled in the society that I live in today? Does my life boldly proclaim a difference of life? A kind of ethic and value and action and belief that is holy and unique and different from this world. Because of man's God-given role, because he is the origin of the woman, man makes little of his position as head if he covers his head in the worship service. Now remember, God is the one who's establishing these customs. It is his scripture which tells us to do this. This is not something that men just came up with on their own. Culture is not just man-made. At times, Okay, it is God-ordained. It doesn't just happen however it happens. If there are elements of the culture that are offensive to God or against his law, we should refuse to adapt those aspects of the culture, no matter how widespread they are. Just because a whole lot of people, millions and millions of people, think that it is okay if you get pregnant accidentally and you don't want to carry that baby to term because there'd be financial burden, you don't want to maybe be ill-equipped to raise that kid in ideal situations. A lot of the people in our nation are saying, culturally, it's okay. Just go have an abortion. You know, hit the reset button. Do it over again. But when the Bible tells us that that is the murder of a child, then we cannot think that way, regardless of whether 99% of the culture says that it's okay. We must stand for the Lord God. Our actions as we obey the truth of God may even, Lord willing, result in the culture around us being influenced by our commitment to God's higher order for man and man's community. So think about the potential we have to shift culture to impact it, to lead them away from some of this darkness, which is such a shameful blight on humanity. So the idea that man should remove his hat as he enters into the worship service, which is something that some of you grew up with. You know, you'd have the older guys in church were militant. If you walked into that church with a hat, they would take it off of your head. You know, they would tell you to, to not wear that cap. That's sort of fallen to the wayside today, but there's reason behind it. That wasn't just something that was born out of the cultural south. That's something that we see rooted here in 1 Corinthians 11 because that hat can have a greater meaning. Okay, now let's talk about the ladies. That's what we've all been waiting for today, I think. Now before we exposit this text, let's speak a little bit about the covering of the head. Having the head covered in in the Greek language of it is literally having down the head, which is an ambiguous statement in and of itself having down the head. And so it's describing something that drapes down from the head as a covering over it, okay? Could that simply mean hair? Some people have argued that it it does. And man, that would be so simple, right? If you were just talking about hair, that just means ladies don't come to worship service bald, right? Shorn, unless of course you've, you've got cancer or something, you don't have any power over it. But if that was the meaning, it would be a lot simpler, more straightforward, but we really can't honestly say that that's what it's talking about here when it's talking about having down from the head because there are Greek words for hair and they were used all the time, very commonly. He uses that very word later on in the text. And so here he's calling something down from the head that differentiates from true hair. And so we're talking about here some kind of a head covering. And over the years, this has looked somewhat different, but consistently over time, what you see is woman would put some sort of thin material over their head. Some people would veil the face, but that wasn't always the case. Over the head as a covering for the hair. Not always was it a complete covering of the hair. Sometimes it was a partial covering of the hair. Depending on the culture that you live in In the world, certain fabrics are available. And so you might find that in in, in certain areas of the world, silk coverings might be very, very much more used. In other places, cotton would be available. So, The scripture here doesn't say a whole lot about the details of it, does it? It uses it very ambiguously here, and I think for a reason. I think that we have some latitude here to look about how you might apply this instruction to cover your hair. The use of head coverings for women was common practice in the church for 1,800 years. It was not strange. It was the standard. It's just what people did. And as we're going to see here later when we look closely at verse 16, I think that Paul backs that up at the very end of this section of scriptures. That changed significantly, at least in the Western world, after World War I. Now why might World War I have changed the way the Western church dealt with head coverings? I think the strongest evidence we have of that change Correlating with World War I is the fact that when men went off to war in such great big numbers, then the women, de facto, had to do the jobs that men traditionally had done. And so then we have women going into factories. Now we have women creating things and working with their hands and building because they didn't have a choice. All the men were fighting, and many of them were being killed. And so there was a shortage of men in America. And so also during this time... Right about that turn of the 19th or the 20th century is when feminism as a philosophy and ideology really began to catalyze in the culture. And so the idea um, spurned on by a lot of evolutionary thought and progressive um, uh, enlightenment ideals began to suggest that women would not be considered equal until they could do exactly the same things as men could do. That the the differences of roles that God had laid out for men and women in the Bible was somehow insulting to women and should be ignored, and a different value or virtue should be pursued, which is absolute equality across the board, not only in value, but in function, too, and in responsibility. And so it is. it should not be a surprise to us that around that time when the world is beginning to shift in the way they look at men and women and beginning to devalue uh, the biblical roles of womanhood, that women started to take their veils off. They stopped wearing their head coverings in church. Today, the use of head coverings in the West is quite foreign to us. There are places in the world where it is still very commonly practiced. So don't think that just because it doesn't happen here that it's not being done in other places in the world. Um, This is from John MacArthur's commentary on this situation. He says, In many Near East countries today, a married woman's veil still signifies that she will not expose herself to other men, that her beauty and charms are reserved entirely for her husband, that she does not care even to be noticed by other men. Similarly, in the culture of first century Corinth, wearing a head covering while ministering or worshiping was a woman's way of stating her devotion and submission to her husband and then demonstrating her commitment to God. Now I think John takes a little bit more of a authority leaning in his interpretation of what those headscarves are for but he's indicating here that this is not a practice that has been entirely abandoned by the Church of God, mostly in westernized and European countries. Do you see women turning away from this? But there is recorded evidence of feminist movements far before World War I. In fact, in the time of Christ, in the New Testament period, there were movements in Rome where women similarly started to try to push back against traditional roles for men and women in the family and in society and, and sometimes those things are justified. I'm not saying that there have never been times when women were oppressed. Obviously in the New Testament time Christians were above and beyond loving and valuing towards women far more than their Roman contemporaries would have been. So there are times when women need to be advocated for. Women should be able to vote. Okay? They should be, have access to the same kind of health cares and 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 resources that men do, but there are times when that is taken much too far. And in Rome, women were cutting all of their hair off. They were shaving their heads as an outward rejection of the political, or not the political, but the cultural mindset that women have a role to play as helper to the man. Many of them abandoned their families. They walked away from their children and refused to raise their kids because they felt that that was shoehorning them into a life that they did not choose for themselves. And so it is possible here that some of that is making its way to Corinth. Corinth is a leading and bustling economic center in Rome, so the liberalist of ideas are going to find their way to Corinth. So we probably are looking at a situation here where some of the women in Corinth, not all, because many of them are keeping those traditions right that Paul had brought, are starting to pull those veils off and throw them to the side and say, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to this idea of biblical headship. So in verse 5, Paul instructs them that every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, who's her head? Her head is man. That's what he said earlier. So it is disrespectful for women to come into the place of worship and to prophesy or to pray with their head uncovered. <clears throat> Now, is this evidence that a woman can pray, prophesy in a leadership capacity in the church? Wouldn't that seem to contradict what we learned earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul clearly establishes male leadership in the reference of church worship and glorifying the Lord? Now, to the contrary, I believe these passages of Scripture would seem to back up what Paul has already preached to the Corinthians. Men are to take the lead here. Here's the logic behind it. This culture for the church, ordained by God, requires the leader in the gathering to pray or to prophesy with their head uncovered so that the glory of God will shine forth, right? That's what he just said in verse 4. Now, for women to take on that role, they would then need to unveil themselves, which would go against this command in verse 5, which is for women to be veiled. So in a sense, this is actually reinforcing the the command that men are to be the ones in those leadership capacities in the worship service. We'll talk more about this, I think, a little bit when we get into chapter 14. But let's think for a second in practical terms, ladies. If this is a biblical command, women, would you be able to follow this? Would you be willing to follow this? I had an interesting conversation with my wife this week when I came home after my studies and she could see that I was tired. (laughs) Hours and hours of reading this week. And I said, Wife, if the Lord shows your husband today that the scripture is pointing towards women wearing veils in the worship service, a head covering of some kind, would you be willing to do that? And praise God, I got a wonderful woman who didn't punch me in the face (laughs) and, and didn't didn't call up her mom, you know, and complain. She said, let me get into the Word with you. And we, we studied it together. And she's been studying it parallel to me this whole week. And so, women, if you've got questions about this, my wife would be a wonderful resource to talk about because she's really been looking into it. She's been digesting these concepts. But I think it's questions that all of us need to ask ourselves. Is this something we would be willing to follow if the conviction of the Spirit comes upon our hearts this is what God ideally wants women to do in a worship service? Somebody gave me a a simple little track the other day. said, oh, maybe we should use these. It was called a chick track, and I don't know if you've ever used them before. Um, There are some really good chick tracks out there. There are some that I'm not really a big fan of. Some of them are quite watered down. Whenever somebody gives me a track, I look at it, and believe me, tracks are very useful. It's just basically a small pamphlet that you might use in conversation with somebody if you want to talk to them about Jesus. You want to show them the plan of salvation, right? So whenever I get one of those tracks, I always look through. And this, the one that the person gave me was pretty solid. But some of them you'll find it's almost like God is good and loving. He has so much to offer you. If you want to get what God has to offer you, you've got to be a Christian. So ask Jesus into your heart, accept him as your Savior, and he's going to make your life more blessed. You won't have to deal with hell, and everything will be good for you. What, what, what was missing from what I just shared with you? The gospel, right? (laughs) So much of the gospel is missing in a track like that. And so we've got to be willing as we share the gospel with people that we help them to understand that it is not just an easy cultural decision to walk an aisle to get your ticket to heaven and then to walk away and never think again about Christ. That is not Christianity. Real evangelism digs into the issues. And the issues is this, that we are sinners. We have broken the law of God. That we in our selfishness in our greed have looked at God's command and said, that's not how I want to live. I'm going to do my own thing. Every one of us does it. Even a tiny little child has rebelliousness built into their heart. We receive it as an inheritance from the first man, Adam. So though Adam was supposed to be the glory of God, in many ways he dishonored the glory of God by breaking God's commandment and then condemning us to a life of living in this sinfulness unless God intervenes. Praise the Lord, he has. And so the gospel that we share with people must speak of sin. It must speak of the tragedy of rebellion to God and the brokenness that we enter into simply by being alive. And then it must progress to the blessings of God, but it also must progress to the point where we realize that loving the Lord God is not just checking a box on a form somewhere. It is giving our life to Him. It is submitting to Him. You are my Lord and my Savior and my King. And now all that I do, I want to do to the glory of God because of what you have done for me. Not to earn my place in heaven, not to show you that you didn't make a bad choice in saving me. I want to do these things because I belong to you now. So conversion to Christianity is not a small, little, light, easy thing that you talk about for two seconds and then you move on with your day. It's about the holistic life of faith. You can't live that life, you can't live in faith to the Lord unless he grabs a hold of your heart and changes you from the inside out. So in verse 6, Paul wants to make sure that Corinthians see the extent to which this is important. He uses analogy here. He's challenging these women to think about their lives as fully submitted to the Lord. And here's the analogy. If a woman was not willing to cover their head in the worship service, he's saying it would be the same as if they came into the worship service with their head totally shaved. This indicates that there was an established social norm that shaved heads were considered radical upon a woman. Has that changed? I would say that in some ways it's the same. While styles and ideas have changed significantly, do you remember when Britney Spears shaved her head? Right now, Britney Spears is in the news. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be our business, but we're all thinking about her because it's always in front of our face. That started when she had a mental breakdown. She shaved off her beautiful blonde hair, and everybody freaked out about it. It was so radical. I remember when Sinead O'Connor did it. It was like this huge thing. Like, I can't believe a woman would do that, would shave off all of her hair. So there are still some vestiges of shock built into this idea of being shaved. And he's saying, listen, worshiping God without a veil should shock you too. That is, that is a woman disregarding a man's headship and his, his place in God's order of creation. Now, if this talk about head coverings seems out there, and a lot of us are like, wow, this is, this is radical, this is different. Doesn't this at least teach us that God, to some degree, cares about Every detail of our life, even our fashion, even the clothes that we wear, right? God is not like, just give me the spiritual stuff, you can handle the rest, right? God wants to be involved with every facet of who we are. Not only what we believe, not only what we say to each other on Sunday, but everything we do and say is now Christ's if we are abiding in him. And this is not the only place where the Lord through his apostles has something to say about the topic of fashion. So 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6. says, Do not let your adorning, the way you dress yourself, your, your fashion, essentially. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning, the way you present yourself to the world, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You can also look at another passage, First Timothy 2, 8 through 10. If we had time, we would go through that. But ladies, beauty should not be superficial. It should not primarily be about the first thing someone sees when they look at you. Don't take that too far. Song of Solomon does praise outward beauty as do other passages of Scripture. We're told again and again how beautiful Sarah, Abraham's wife, was. She was a gorgeous woman. This is the one that was just referenced in 1 Peter. So there's nothing wrong with being beautiful or caring about the way that you look. Our goal is not to become as bland as possible. But we should see here from this passage in 1 Peter that the outward is not really what we should be primarily focused on and that it should be something that God should have a say in. And notice here that even in that time, it says, look at the way they used to do it, right? Old ways are not always dead for good reasons. Sometimes we need to look back at times where things were more simple, or were different than they are today. Progress is not always progressive, mm-hmm. okay? So in transition and summary, women who were refusing to wear head coverings in observance of the custom that Paul was passing on to them, and that many of them were apparently abiding by, some of them were doing this, but a few were not, They should think of that as similar to a woman shaving her hair, cutting it all off. He considered it radical. He considered it somewhat shocking to the degree. And at verse 6, he says that either women should have their head covered or they should just go all the way and shave their head. He's instructing them here to have some consistency in their expression of obedience to God's will. I have to think there's some hyperbole there that he's not literally saying, go shave your heads, ladies. If the message the Corinthian women were trying to send with not wearing a head covering was that they were not under the headship of a man, then they should make that abundantly clear and just cut off their hair. That's what he's saying. Now Paul's anticipated response to that is that a woman would say, but I would never do that. I would lose the glory of my beautiful hair. And it's, it's stated in scripture that a woman's hair is like a glory to her. But he's saying that it would be an action of the same category to shave your hair. Why would they be ashamed of one and not the other? So in verse 8, Paul is going to return to the foundation that he laid earlier. For man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. So woman in some regards is an extension of man. There is an order established here whereby one affords glory to the other. And again, I, I want to say this again. That doesn't mean that women is any, in any way less than a man. Don't, don't misunderstand that at all. These passages of scriptures must be handled carefully. Because this kind of instruction is often abused and taken out of context without the love of Christ undergirding it. And people have used this to be mean to their wives, to be tyrants, and that's not the the aim of these passages. But we must see that woman is an extension of man by creation. And if man is God's glory... You might ask yourself, well, why doesn't he cover himself? If she's supposed to cover herself because she's the glory of man, why doesn't man cover himself since he's the glory of God? Well, it has to do with their function. And it has to do with their creation. Because head coverings only apply in the expression of headship over similar creatures, okay, man and woman are different in important ways. We should know that. Many people in our society do not know that. Men and women are different in important ways. Ways that should be celebrated and affirmed. But they are similar enough that an outward symbol is helpful in differentiating. Head coverings wouldn't apply from man to God because man was not made from God. He wasn't made from the side of God. He was made by God, spoken in different, into existence, a different creature of a different category altogether. But woman was made from man. So they're of the same stuff, the same substance. There's a significant difference between man and woman. Contrary to what the secular culture of the world is force-feeding us to believe today. So let's acknowledge two statements that are made here in verses 8 through 9. This doesn't tell the whole story. But, but Paul says in verse 8 that woman was made from man. Extension of Adam's physical body. And that is why in marriage we often say, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Uh, We cling to that one. We have become one flesh together. There's a a unity there. So woman was made from man. Verse 9 goes and takes it a step further and says, woman was made for man, not just from him, but for him. And that means that she was designed to help him to overcome a deficiency in him. He was not good by himself. God declared that. There was more needed. There was a blessing that he was lacking because woman had not been created. And so God in his love and his mercy creates woman as a helper, a helpmeet for man. That doesn't mean that men are never helpful to women. Obviously, there's a reciprocation here and we'll see that in a minute. But it was not good for a man to be alone. And so to make things better, God provides Eve for Adam. So they are similar, but they do have different roles. And the veil or the head covering is a way for a woman to be differentiated from a man, particularly in the context of a worship service, where genders establish role, and they establish responsibility. Now, oh, how some have distorted the scope of this principle. This does not make man a sovereign over woman. It doesn't put man in a position of God over her. Woman, you have one God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit, that is who you worship. That is who is alone, worthy of your greatest love and affection and commitment. You do not worship your husband. You do not worship your husband. You worship your Jesus. Some men have tried to twist these scriptures in such a way that their wife becomes their worshiper and they are brought into the subjugation of that man's every whim and that is not to be. Man is given a leadership responsibility over woman in part because woman is such a blessing to him. She is like a glory to him. She is the great gift that God has given to man so that he would not be not good. She is a necessary blessing. So headship is not meant to devalue woman. And to be extra certain that mistake is not made, Paul lines out in verses 11 through 12 the interdependent nature of the sexes. He says, now don't get this wrong. You know that woman is made from man, but don't forget that now every man I'm talking to today came forth from a woman, right? So there is significance in the original origin, but that doesn't wipe away the significance of the fact that we are all dependent on our mothers and should love our mothers, should care for them, should respect them. He makes sure, if you read the whole passage in context, that it doesn't, it doesn't get twisted and used for evil. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, says verse 10. Okay, so here we're getting down to the business of commands. Paul tells Corinth Corinth, that a, a woman in worship ought to have a symbol because of the meaning behind that symbol. That's what a symbol does, right? A symbol points to a greater reality. It points to the divine order and it helps us to not disregard that. Paul points to some biblical evidence to support his argument, which has resulted in some terminal head scratching for theologians over the years. Look at verse 10. He says, because of what? Well, it's easy. Because of the angels. That's why you should wear a head covering, ladies. And most of you are like, like most of us are, right? That doesn't seem to make sense. And there has been an endless amount of ink spilled trying to explain what it means and it says there, because of the angels. Because it's so ambiguous, we should not be very dogmatic about it. Because Paul really leaves it up in the air. He doesn't define it. He doesn't tell you what he means by that. But I, after studying a lot of these different viewpoints, the one that seems to make the best sense to me is we're talking about headship. We're talking about authority. And so he mentions the angels why. What did the angels do? The angels were created. They were given order in heaven. They were to praise and serve the Lord God. But one of those angels didn't like that order. One of those angels, though he was created as a creature of light, Lucifer, who would later be called Satan, the devil, that serpent of old, Lucifer wanted what was not given to him. He was discontent in his creation. So we can read about this. He fell from grace trying to be what only God can be. And in his rebellion, he took a third of the heavenly host's With him, a third of the angels rebel against God in heaven. They are cast down out of heaven. They are what we refer to now when we speak of demons, the principalities of the air, the darkness of this earth, these spiritual forces that for a time will try to rebel against God until they are finally put into subjection after judgment. Think of the angels. It is easy to forget the order that God has given and look at what unfolds when we do. It's not saying that if you don't have a head cover on, we're all rebelling against God and going to get kicked out of the church. That's not what it's saying there. But he is helping us to understand that our hearts need to be submitted to the Lord and happy for the order he has provided for us. Now, verse 13, Paul urges the Corinthians to judge the matter for themselves. And in a similar vein, we as a church have got to do the same in light of what we have been learning this morning. Should the standard of worship in the church today be that a man removes a hat in the assembly of worship? And should godly women bear a symbol of headship that indicates that they have embraced the role that God has blessed them with? Is that what we need to move towards? Now, in anticipating resistance to that, um, I have thought about all the questions that would be raised from this and we need to go through some of them. This is a very clear-cut example, friends, of a secondary issue. Okay, there are primary issues in the church, issues that are non-negotiable, issues that really can only be seen one way or if we're responsible to scripture and there are secondary issues. Secondary issues, there's room for people to disagree on those things. There are responsible brothers and sisters in the Lord who look at it from one angle And brothers and sisters of the Lord who are faithful and responsible and they look at it from a different angle and draw different conclusions. Now secondary issues are still issues. So this is not a non-issue. We owe the scripture a responsible and thorough look at the commands laid out here. So you may decide after weighing the evidence that your conscience is not moved to take on the practice of covering your head if you're a woman or removing your hat if you're a man. And if that is the case, I want you to do it for good reasons. I want you to do it for responsible reasons. I don't want you to do it because you like wearing hats. And you don't like your bald heads. You want to put a hat on it all the time. That's me. I don't, like having, I don't like having a bald head, so I like to wear hats. I don't want you to do it because there's no way you're going to cover up this hairstyle you just spent a bunch of money on, you know. You've got this wonderful color that you just paid a lot of money to get, and you want everyone to see what it is. You, you got this great up-to. So you're not going to do it? I don't want you to make the decision based on those reasons. Especially considering the controversial nature of the instruction laid out here in chapter 11, I want to look carefully at some of the primary arguments that people make against the idea that Christian women today should abide by the guidelines described here. I'm going to ignore you a little bit, guys, because most of us are not having that big of an issue with this thing. Some of these thoughts may have raced through your minds as I've been preaching the text. And so let's interact with those questions that are frequently raised. First of all, Isn't this a regional, cultural issue? Doesn't this really just apply to the Corinthian congregation? There are times in hermeneutics, which is the study of how to really understand the text, right? Well, you make a mistake if you read a message from one person to a group of people and you think, that applies to me automatically. Sometimes it doesn't. So is this just regional? Is it just cultural? First, we have to be resistant to the notion that there are parts of the Scripture that are no longer applicable because culture has changed. Culture is always changing. It will always be changing. The Word of God, however, does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It is relevant every day. Just because the general practices of the world move beyond what the Word says, Unless the Word itself instructs Christians to leave behind any command of Scripture, such as the restrictions that the Old Testament Israel had on food and what they ate, or the sacrificial system that pointed forward to Christ and is now obsolete, or the ceremonial requirements of circumcision, which are not necessary anymore. Unless the Word says those laws don't matter anymore, then we should not let them go. In this particular case, notice, nothing in Paul's argument is particularly regional, or only relevant to a specific time. Look at what Paul appeals to. Paul appeals to the creation story. Is that universal or specific? It doesn't just apply to them. It applies to all of us, right? Where does Eve come from? Eve is your ancestor just as much as Eve was the Corinthians' ancestor. So it appeals to something universal that is true to all the members of the church, wherever they are at and whenever they were at. And then Paul appeals to nature. Verse 15 says, Doesn't nature even tell you that it is a glory for a woman to have long hair? And it is uh, kind of weird for a guy to have super long hair. I know that's less and less the case today in our culture. But nature throughout the vast majority of history has kind of been that's the general thought that, that women should have long hair and men should have short hair. Doesn't nature seem to approve that? Nature is not something that was specific just to the Corinthians. It's something that's specific to all of us. Now, these are universal testimonies, not time or cultural specific. So Paul doesn't give us the impression that this is a set of instructions only relevant to that particular church. And we're going to see that even as we look at verse 16 in a second. Isn't this a moot point though, right? since we are free from the law. That's the second argument. We no longer have to follow the law because we have been set free from the law. We now live in grace. We have the freedom to choose. Paul has not skirted away from that, right? He has argued to us that there is much freedom in the Christian life. And this is usually the first resistance that Christians will offer against a text like this. Is the direction to abide by the custom of women wearing head coverings in the assembly, is it legalistic? Is it, is it demanding more people than we should? Now, I, I really bristle at the word legalistic because nobody understands it. Okay, so I want to help you understand what it means to be legalistic. To be legalistic does not mean that you follow laws. Okay? Legal and legalistic are not the same thing. What makes something or a practice or a group, what makes them legalistic? First of all, when you keep the law as a way of becoming righteous, that is legalistic. When you see the law as your ladder to which you climb to heaven, that's legalistic, okay? Secondly, the law of man, when presented as the law of God, that's legalistic. When you try to convince everyone that they've got to do something that man invented, and they say this is God's will for your life, when the scripture does not back that up or support it, legalism, reject it, okay? And thirdly, you get legalistic when Christian freedom is unnecessarily hindered. Now, in order to understand the unnecessarily, you might have to rewind and go back to a couple of sermons because we talked a lot about how though we've been given much freedom in Christ, because of our desire to subject ourselves to one another in love, that we should be willing to give up many of those freedoms. So yes, Paul, who goes to great lengths to unbind the conscience from thinking that obedience to the law uh, saves us or justifies us in any way, he goes to equal lengths to make sure that the church of God doesn't treat Jesus as their consultant instead of their king if we're to appeal to our Christian freedom every time the word directed us away from what is natural to us, we would have to edit the New Testament down to nearly nothing. Much of Paul's letters are, you are not behaving in a way that is honoring to the Lord. Follow the law of God rightfully in Christ. So we need to to acknowledge that. So if you choose not to cover your heads, ladies, it should not be because following the instructions laid forth in this chapter is legalistic. It would not be legalistic unless your actions were motivated by the three problems that I described earlier. Next opposition to it. Won't this ruin our chance to evangelize the people of our community? If someone comes in here to check out our church and all the ladies are wearing these head covers, you would be like, whoa, this is a cult. I'm going away, right? I'm not going to go to this church. I don't have to cover my head with a scarf. That's crazy. So let's think about that. This argument is the same argument that many wayward Southern Baptist leaders have recently been pumping out to us, appealing to, we've got to do what the culture's doing because the world is watching us. Is the world watching us pretend to be just like secular people? Or is the world watching us be as Christ directed us to be? You should walk into a church and it should feel different than the world. Because the people there have their hearts and minds set on different things. They are following a different drummer in the church. So our church needs to be different. We cannot think that just because we look different than the world or act different than the world or talk different than the world that the people in the world will never want to have anything to do with us. What characterizes that kind of disciple? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 5, right? We're to make disciples of the nations. That's what evangelism is about. What characterizes that kind of a disciple? It is love for the Lord, which results, manifests itself, in a life that is tuned to sing his praises, that is willing and happy to obey what he has commanded. So, Paul's commandments, by the way, are Christ's commandments. You know that, right? You don't have like Jesus's commands and then Paul's commands and John's commands. You just get to pick which canon you like the best. All of scripture are the words of Christ. And so if we are to love the Lord well, we need to obey the commands that he sets forth for us. If someone's going to choose to reject Jesus rather than change their fashion, somebody were to come in and be, and be able to hear the gospel and be like, man, that sounds good. I don't want to go to hell. I want to get right. I know I've got sin in my life, but man, if that's a deal break. I just can't wear that thing on my head. just can't do it. I don't think they really get what the gospel's saying. And I don't think the spirit's moving yet if the Spirit is moving in the heart of somebody in that radical transformational way, then there ain't no piece of cloth that's going to hold someone back from trusting the Lord Jesus. Next objection. Doesn't Paul in verse 16 make the whole business of head coverings a voluntary matter? Look at verse 16 again. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Some people look at that verse and they say, look, if anybody is inclined to be contentious in any words, if you disagree, then don't worry about it. We don't, we don't have a practice like this in the Church of God. Just do whatever you want. It's not like it's not something that you need to do. But look at that verse carefully. What practice does Paul refer to in verse 16? Some argue that what the apostle is talking about is the practical instruction about head coverings. We have no head covering practice in the churches of God. So you don't have to do it if you don't want to. But doesn't that indicate a regional issue relevant only to Corinth? We've already established that's not the case. And the next words that he said doesn't make sense either. He says, no, the the practice in view is, is 1 Corinthians verse 16, chapter 11. It's the contention itself. Contentiousness is not something that is spread throughout the churches it doesn't define what christians are we should not be constantly fighting against one another and so when he says that we don't have any such practice that means that we don't fight about stuff like this we're not we're not battling over it It doesn't divide us in other words if you want to be contentious about what i just taught know this you're going to be alone in your contention because the churches of god throughout the land are already embracing this they've been practicing it You may want to ditch the head coverings so that you fit into the secular culture of Corinth better, but the expense of doing so is that you'll be practicing your faith in a way that is distinctly foreign to other Orthodox churches that make up your Christian family. He's saying verse 16 is not a just do whatever you want to do kind of clause that gets you out of the whole chapter here. It is an indicator that if you choose not to do this, you're not going to fit into much of Christianity in the way that you dress and in your fashion. And so this last question that we should likely ask is this. Isn't this business of men being uncovered in worship and women being covered in worship, isn't it just a matter of conscience? And the answer to that, I think, has to be yes and no. Any command levied to God's people should be respected and obeyed with trust that God gave the command and that it is therefore what is best for us and that that command will ultimately glorify Him more and will be a blessing to us through obedience. But there are reasons that head coverings are considered a secondary issue. There are reasons that we see faithful biblical churches, not just in America, but around the globe, not pressing this issue. The argument in itself is some ways incomplete. Remember, Paul is responding to the letter that the Corinthians had sent to him with all of these slogans and all these ideas, and we don't have that letter. So some of the responses that Paul makes in this particular section seem almost as if he mentioned something briefly but doesn't bother to explain it because they already talked about it in previous letters. So we don't have all that information. So it's hard for us to be completely dogmatic on things such as because of the angels. So that makes it difficult for us to take one hardline stance on a passage like this. The use of head coverings is not a principle that we see taught anywhere else in Scripture as plainly as we see here. Perhaps, as verse 16 likely suggests, it was so universally accepted that there was no need to mention it in any of the other letters that Paul wrote. Maybe that was the case. But when a passage has difficulties and we have very few or no other passages to turn to for clarity, it is hard to take a very cut and dry stance and insist on the universal implication of that instruction. So ultimately, the head covering serves as what? It serves as a symbol. It serves as a symbol that indicates that you are saying yes and amen to the biblical order that God has established to create healthy communities, such as the church and the family and government. It is a symbol of something greater. While it is an outward adornment, it sends a message. The message is that you believe, that you trust, that you are on board with whatever scripture God puts forth in His Word. Now, can a woman say the same message without wearing a head covering to the Lord's Day gathering. I would say yes to that. I know many who do. I don't, I don't doubt their sincerity. And in most of those women, there are other ways that they are unashamedly showing that they embrace biblical headship. They have gentle spirits. They are willing to help. They, they do not reject this design of being a helpmeet and, and a support. They, they have a, a great desire to serve others and, and to be humble They respect the biblical structure of authority. What we don't have here from Paul is the endorsement of a third sacrament or ordinance of the church. Men worship with uncovered heads and women worship with covered heads. That's not particularly a sacrament in that it must be universally implemented. I think it's very clear here that Paul's instructions in chapter 11 are not intended to carry that kind of weight. Still, rather than ask the question why, shouldn't we ask the question also, why not? If it was helpful for the Corinthians who were a people much like us, then why not wear a head covering? Why not take our hats off when we come to church? If it was helpful for the Corinthians who are people much like us and that we are surrounded by a culture that is corrupt and wicked and we are constantly being drawn toward it by the pressures of the media and by pressures of the people in our neighborhoods, then why would it be a bad thing for us to say in a visible, symbolic way, I stand for the Lord. And I love what the Lord is doing. And even if it makes me look different, I'm going to trust what he has to say. If the culture that we are supposed to be so different from is bending over backwards to blur the line between what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, why not grab hold of this example and make use of the symbol in our own lives? In many places, you're going to find women who come into the congregation ready to serve, ready to learn and grow, ready to praise their Savior. They do that often They do that without any head covering. They do it with short haircuts. The Lord is using them. The Lord is growing them. We don't necessarily see a direct consequence for them not covering their heads. But does that mean that they're complete? Does that mean that they're perfect? Does that mean that they couldn't do it better by way of a more completely reformed life? I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, no one ever said at the end of his course, that he had lived too holy or too close to God. No one's ever going to say that. So pastorally, I urge you to consider the value of the symbol, consider the universality of of the arguments that Paul presents to the church in Corinth, to consider the context of the passage following right after a call to glorify God in all that we do and preceding a part that's clearly about how we should conduct ourselves in the gathered church of worship. If you are married, ladies... Talk with your husband in earnest about these things and ask if he agrees or disagrees with what was preached today and why it was preached today. Because just as you are a blessing to God, to your husband, so too does God intend him to be a blessing to you in leadership and discernment. So make use of that resource. Talk with him. Pray with him about it. Pray about whether God is urging you on to this practice and whether or not your head is covered next week. Make sure that you are surrendered in heart, mind, and soul unequivocally to Christ who is the head of every believer. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your teaching. We pray, Lord God, that this would spur on great thought and conversation among us. Lord, help us to rejoice now as we transition to a time of baptism. We ask, Lord God, that this would also encourage our souls and that particularly to Sabrina and Christina, this would be a wonderful moment of their lives when they look back and recognize their commitment to the church and their connection to a body of believers who will be a family to them moving forward in sanctity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.